Gresham College presents Haydn in London, Papa Haydn or Genial Revolutionary by Chamber Domain. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I sound very loud on this, actually. It's a bit spooky. Um, today's performance, the main piece on the programme is Haydn's London Symphony. It's actually the final symphony that he composed. And on the 4th of May, 1795... Haydn um, performed this piece directing from the keyboard uh, in a concert that was at the King's Theatre on Haymarket. And the concert included his last symphonies that he'd written, um, some chamber music, some arias from various cantatas and um, pieces he'd written for singers. And there were some pieces with piano and, and small ensemble that were played in the same concert. The orchestra was quite large for Haydn's music. It, it, it contained 60 players. And Haydn, as a result of this concert, earned 4,000 guilders. Um, he said, this, is, this is only, could only be possible in London. 4,000 guilders is meaningless, like maybe, um, you know, $5 billion bailout. It's sort of a meaningless figure now um, to, to all of us. But to put it into some kind of context, it represented five or six years of Haydn's salary as a court musician in Esterhazy. And in fact, as I said in my last talk, the first two years that he was in London, he earned uh, more money in those two years, working in London, performing his music, teaching, playing for the aristocracy. He earned more money than he earned in 25 years as a court composer in Esterhazy. So London was a, a very interesting place for him to be, 1795 was just after the French Revolution. There were many people from France, intellectuals, fantastic performers that had come from the continent. Um, and Haydn enjoyed himself very much, and this concert was a huge success. This particular piece, the London Symphony, is the last symphony that he wrote. And really, it represents many of the qualities which were to become hugely influential, um, particularly in the 20th century. When you listen to the beginning of this symphony, in this particular arrangement by Salomon, who was the impresario that brought Haydn to London in the first place, the very opening has a kind of haughty grandeur of perhaps uh, a French overture, so something from the Baroque period. And very quickly, Haydn moves away from this kind of Baroque stateliness and starts exploring some of the most remote and, and beautiful dissonant harmonies almost immediately uh, after the start of this rather imposing opening. This is very typical of Haydn because all the way through his career, one thing that's very consistent was that he was a great experimenter. And I think that probably the biggest achievement that he achieved during his long life, bearing in mind that he was born in 1732 and he died in 1809, which was a long time for someone to be alive in those days, particularly given that he always was very hard-working um, and, and produced an enormous quantity of music on a regular basis to order from the court in Esterhazy and also as a freelance composer in Vienna and London. And when you look at his music overall, this incredible invention, what you begin to uh, see his achievement is that he's really writing music where the form uh, is no longer 
dictated by the content. In Baroque music, if you have a minuet or a gavotte, the actual structure of the music is dictated by the fact that it's a gavotte. So you have certain rhythmical patterns, certain melodic gestures, certain articulations that belong to that particular formal structure. But with Haydn, what he's achieved by the end of his life, and you'll hear it in this symphony, is something where the um, content actually determines the form of the piece. And this is a very radical idea, if you think about it. It means that you can have an idea and you can basically create music into anything, into something completely different. Um, What is so fascinating about this particular idea, and it's something that fits well with the Enlightenment aesthetic and how the Enlightenment aesthetic then moves into Romanticism, um, you'd think that this would be something that the Romantics would be impressed by. But what actually happened to Haydn is very interesting. To give you some idea of how, what a celebrity he was, when he died in um, 1809, uh, Napoleon sent a, a group of officers to provide a guard of honour around his house in Vienna. Now, bearing in mind, that's rather like getting the Royal Bank of Scotland to provide a guard of honour at um, Ken Livingstone's wake or something, I don't know. But, <laughs> but you know, it was, this was the enemy... Uh, he was so well respected and such a famous figure in his own day that you know Napoleon made sure that he sent these troops to provide a guard of honour, and that says a lot about his status as the most eminent composer and the most distinguished in terms of his age and long longevity. That that was the case. But what is interesting about the Romantic era is that it wasn't so much Haydn that the Romantics were interested in; it was more Beethoven. And a lot of this is down to the way that Wagner developed his ideas later on in the 19th century. And Beethoven 9, for example, Wagner wrote a book about Beethoven 9 and saw Beethoven as the way, to, the, the way that music was going to go. And this was like a new German music. It was very much linked to the idea of the nation-state and romantic ideas of Beethoven being a heroic figure and a heroic, tragic figure. Haydn was considered a heroic figure, but somehow he became seen as the kind of elder statesman rather than the visionary composer. Um, and of course, the Romantics idolised Mozart because it's easy to create a myth about someone that writes the most perfect music, a child prodigy who somehow has these demons and dies very young. It, that, that's easy for, that was easy for the Romantic ideas to be spun from Mozart. But with Haydn... You know, very hard-working, a, a, a great musician, a, a perfectionist at detail. He, he somehow didn't fit into that mould. So in the 19th century, his music was seen as rather old-fashioned and slightly plodding. Perhaps it was because many amateur musicians played his quartets badly in their houses and people just saw it as rather old hat. Um, but actually, Haydn's legacy is uh, a huge one, and it's largely to do with this um, enormously long creative life and the way that he generates forms from the actual content is a very radical concept and it's one which without Haydn, Beethoven and composers after Beethoven would have struggled. In fact, um, pieces like Tristan and Isolde would be impossible to compose without having that kind of, of concept where you come up with an idea and you can spin this idea out for four or five hours into a huge opera. This is Haydn's legacy to 
uh, the, the, the following history of, of music after, after this period. Um, one of the other things that you'll hear in the London Symphony is uh, Haydn's incredible use of silence. Very, in fact, there are no composers before Haydn that really use silence um, as a, an ironic effect, as a, an effect to jolt the listener, an effect to kind of get people guessing what's going to happen next. He was the master of this. Um, suspense. And you'll hear this in the London Symphony. There are many examples. Haydn also was a great one for using asymmetry, coming up with a, a phrase that doesn't quite sound right. If you listen to the minuet, first minuet of the London Symphony, you'll know what I'm talking about. You can't dance to it, you trip over. And this is something that had a huge influence um, on composers like Stravinsky in the 20th century, particularly after the First World War, where the concept of romanticism and nationalism was no longer a popular idea. And neoclassicism in music and in other art forms was to become hugely popular. And in fact, uh, one of the interesting things about Stravinsky's own music, if you listen to the Rite of Spring or Petrushka or Firebird, they're essentially an extension of the romantic idea of the symphony orchestra and the, the kind of idea of creating music with amazing colours, lots of effects, very um, emotive music. And Stravinsky moved away from that style to something much more simple with um, the Polchinella Suite. And the Suite Italienne, which is later in the programme on the cello, is actually an arrangement of Polchinella. And you'll hear the use of silence and this idea of generating forms out of little motivic gestures. This is exactly Haydn's legacy. Um, I've spoken about this in previous talks, but the idea of musical irony really begins with, with Haydn. And this is something that has a huge history, not only in music, um, but in all the art, other art forms. And Haydn really is the very beginning of this. I've mentioned before, Haydn owned copies of Tristram Shandy and A Sentimental Journey, two very radical books by the English author Lawrence Stern. And Haydn very much develops these ideas in his music, the idea of taking the listener for a ride, the idea of humour that's only really understood by people that know what's going on, or humour that's very obvious to people as well. Um, there are lots of sudden dynamic changes in his music, which you'll hear in the symphony. In the 20th century, um, the, really the sort of Haydn Renaissance, if you like, um, happened in France when it was the centenary of his death in uh, uh, not, 1909, um, a group of French composers, including Ravel and Debussy, decided to write pieces based on Haydn's name. And it is actually possible to use Haydn's name and turn it into notes if you pretend that Y and N are musical notes. So um, that was something where you begin to see composers who were very radical and inventive in their own right looking back to this earlier music. Um, obviously, with the advent of recording, um, eventually Haydn's symphonies were recorded, but actually the complete sort of Haydn editions didn't really emerge on record until the 60s and 70s, which is a long time, really. So they weren't popular particularly. Even now, people 
would rather listen to a Mozart symphony or a Beethoven symphony, but this is not to diminish Haydn's importance as a composer. The piece um, that you're going to hear in the first in the programme is by a British composer called George Benjamin, and this was actually written as a homage to Haydn for the um, 250th anniversary of his death, uh, of his birth, sorry. And um, this particular piece shows some influence of the idea of generating content from a, a problem or a knot. In this case, um, he uses the B-A-D-D-G, um, Haydn's name in notes, and that forms the kind of motivic basis for a, a short piano piece. Also, you'll notice that the ornamentation that he uses and some of the rhythmical um, elements don't sound too dissimilar from the beginning of the London Symphony, these dotted rhythms, double dotted rhythms. The flute piece, um, Flight, which is from 1979, it's an unaccompanied flute. Now, here's another example of how Haydn may have influenced Benjamin's thinking. This particular piece is in a rondo form, and Haydn's many finales of his symphonies are in rondo form, where you have an idea, you have an A idea, then you have something a bit different, which is the B idea, and then you come back to A again, and then you might have a C idea, and then you come back to A again, and you kind of generate a structure that's like a kind of um, layered cake of, of musical ideas. And Haydn um, used these type of finales because it enabled him to have much more material than just having a, a fugal finale, which in a lot of the earlier string quartets, he always writes a fugue as a finale. That was a tradition. But Haydn sort of move, moves away from that. And what you find in his symphonies is you might have a fugal element at some point in the piece, but it won't be, the whole movement won't be a fugue. So that is a, a very good example of using the material to generate the form rather than to write something that has a form already imposed on it by the actual nature of the music. So in terms of his legacy, there are many um, aspects of his music that have influenced our thinking. And I think also one of the things to remember, it's not just the music itself that influenced subsequent comp composers, it's also the ideas that lie behind it. And that's something that's always worth remembering. Um, with people like Haydn and Beethoven, they were very much men of their time. To put Haydn into some kind of context, his working life, he started out as a servant. And by the end of his working life, he was really a master of his own destiny. He was financially independent. He didn't need to have um, to work for a prince or, a, or an archbishop. And that is a very radical shift. People often said when I was at school that Beethoven was the first composer to achieve that, but actually it was really Haydn. Handel as well. And Handel. That's very true. And this all boils down to one issue, because it was London that enabled both Handel and Haydn to become free from um, the kind of constraints of working for a prince or a duke or a pope or whoever it was that they were working for. And it was because London was the biggest city in the world at that particular point in time. And there was a certain point, I think, in time in the 18th century where London was basically the epicentre of all things artistic and all things tasteful. 
Um, and just to bring this little talk to a close, one of the interesting facts about Salomon, who arranged the London Symphony for Piano Quintet, this was a commercial enterprise. Salomon, when he bought Haydn over to London, he actually owned the rights to these symphonies, so he could do what he wanted with them. He could publish them a thousand times with different publishers. Um, and the whole basis of London musical culture, um, now as then, was very much based on entrepreneurialism rather than on princely patronage. And in fact, the royal family, although they heard Haydn play, they weren't great patrons of the arts. Um, now, the only royal that's really a patron of the arts is Prince Charles. So nothing much has changed since then. But what Haydn has given us and what his um, London stay represents is it are obviously the, the last symphonies that he wrote, which are called collectively the London symphonies, which are probably his most developed and most radical symphonic creations. That's one thing. Um, but it's also the fact that he would have had a huge influence on musicians here and a huge um, influence on how London was perceived in the rest of Europe as a cultural centre. Um, and that really was a kind of golden period for London, this period where basically from Handel through to Haydn's um, last stay in 1795. That was one of the great flowerings of music-making um, in this country. So I hope you enjoy tonight's concert. I think, to conclude, Haydn is a radical, innovative composer um, who hides behind a kind of rather haughty, bewigged um, exterior, but his actual mind and his feeling towards music and his understanding of the human condition is really beautifully depicted in, in the pieces that you'll hear um, today, particularly the London Symphony. Thank you very much.
For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.